Good afternoon. I'm John Hart, the co-founder of the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions, or C3 Solutions, and the editor of our news magazine, C3. Welcome to another edition of Right Voices, where we interview the leading thinkers, uh, policymakers, thought leaders on the conservative intersection of, of environmental and energy policy. So today we've got a very special guest, Nick Loris, who is our vice president of public policy at C3 Solutions. And Nick also spent about 13 years at the Heritage Foundation, where he managed the energy and environment portfolio. And today we're releasing a climate and freedom agenda. And Nick is the author of that and brings a really wealth of experience and expertise of understanding the big picture and also the fine details of energy and environment policy. So, Nick, welcome. It's great to have you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, Nick, let's talk about the, the state of the of the agenda. You know, there's been a big shift in Republican politics in the central right movement on the issue of climate, energy, and environment over the past five years. I think we've we've moved past the era of of where there was a, a considerable part of the party that just didn't want to talk about it. They either would deny that it's a problem or wouldn't offer solutions. And, th- and there's been a big uh, flip, which I think is very promising uh, for, for the movement in the country. And, and the House uh, uh, has a t- climate task force that, that Minority Leader McCarthy put together, and they're releasing a plan. Um, maybe before we talk about the details of what you've written, give us the lay of the land of where that agenda is today and where it's headed this, this summer. Yeah, so the House uh, released uh, what what they're calling uh, six pillars to uh, really get at energy security, energy affordability, and making progress on the environment and climate. And so they're releasing these pillars in a one at a time. They started last week with unlocking America's resources, uh, well understanding that you know gas prices are at record highs, electricity rates are increasing, and Americans care desperately about energy affordability and energy security. And when we produce natural resources, whether that's uh, oil or natural gas or mining for critical minerals in the United States, uh, it, it's good for the U.S. economy. It's good for uh, bringing down prices. And it's also good for the environment, because if we don't do it here, it's going to shift to other countries where the environmental standards aren't as rigorous. So uh, that's the first pillar that they released over the summer. They're going to be trickling out the other five uh, leading up to August recess. So the the other five include uh, beat China and Russia, let America build, uh, build resilient communities, American innovation, and conservation with a purpose. Great. So walk us through the climate and freedom agenda. So give us an overview of, of what we're releasing and why we're releasing it, but also uh, provide some context of how our agenda and our framework is complementary with what the House has, has already done and, and is in the process of doing. Yeah, it's very complimentary. In fact, I think it's it's very complimentary uh, across uh, the political spectrum. In some instances, you know, some of the ideas that we support and, and like uh, have bipartisan support in Congress, both in the House and the Senate. Uh, but we put this product together uh, effectively, knowing that uh, again, energy prices are high. Um, you know, people care about. Um, If we produce it here in the United States, uh, that means uh, stronger economic growth and a healthier environment. Uh, And so our policy agenda is much more kind of issue uh, specific uh, that, you know, we talk about energy security and permitting and tax policy, as well as 
uh, ways to increase uh, nuclear uh, development in the United States and around the world, uh, building out renewable power and really taking kind of an all of the above approach to energy uh, that I think too often has meant subsidize all of the above. We're talking about reducing the regulatory and policy barriers to allow these energy technologies to compete. Uh, and we also care about natural climate solutions. So we have chapters on ag policy, uh, as well as forest management, too. And I think the overlap between what the House wants to do and what our policy agenda looks like is, you know, in the Venn diagram, there's a, a, an awful lot of overlap, you know, whether it is permitting reform uh, or good tax policy or investing in natural climate solutions that we know will lead to better forest management, um, increasing agricultural yields for smaller environmental footprints, uh, you know, all of these things uh, that the House aims to achieve with its six pillars, uh, we aim to achieve in our climate and freedom agenda, where we have, um, I would say, not necessarily differed, but with our report right now as offered more policy detail right now, right off the bat. You know, I, I think the, the House plan offers these six pillars. They're offering very good talking points on why these pillars are important for uh, the U.S. economy and for energy security and for environmental progress uh, and listing a few bills uh, that are complementary to their pillars, we're getting into policy details specifically for an administration, specifically for Congress on how to reform and remove some of the regulatory and policy barriers uh, that inhibit economic and environmental progress across the board. Yeah, I want to circle back on that, but but a, a phrase that you used uh, should should have a little explanation. All of the above. What is what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I think too often, uh, you know, members of Congress or media or you know people in the think tank community often have their uh, technology of choice, and too often the the conversation about energy policy has been, you know, the the left loves renewables, wind and solar and batteries, and the right loves fossil fuels and nuclear. Uh, and if you care about energy innovation and the market and energy affordability, you should care about what the market dictates will supply those things. Um, affordable, reliable energy is paramount to American families and businesses, uh, you know, as we see now, with energy prices increasing, with diesel costs increasing, that means people are paying more, not just uh, at the pump and not just when their electricity bill comes, uh, but also for all the other goods and services because energy is such a critical input for just about everything we make and do. Uh, so an all of the above approach says, you know, we don't know if nuclear will be successful. We hope it will be. We don't know if wind and solar will be successful. You know, it, it's made a lot of progress in cost reduction and deployment. But is the future wind and solar? Uh, I don't know. Uh, and if I did, I'd be investing in those technologies in the stock market rather than working at a think tank. So an all of the above approach really takes the policy position that you know the future um, is unknown to uh, you know, the marketplace and, and the marketplace will best dictate what drives energy innovation forward, you know, where, where the think tank community comes into play and where policymakers should come into play is not saying we think it's going to be this technology, so let's give them a subsidy or a targeted tax credit, but to remove the policy barriers to allow for a bottom-up uh, innovation approach to drive energy investment forward. So I think the contrast is all of the above includes, as you said, all, all energy sources, renewable, non-renewable, 
so that the market can pick winners and losers and keep energy abundant and prices low. Whereas I think that the progressive left errs when they they offer an everything but strategy, where they pick out losers, <laughs> where they pick out you know fossil fuels or oil and gas and demonize that and say we're going to go only go nuclear. And I think and a point you've made in the report and and a lot of other writings that our organization always makes is what that leads to is emission shifting. It's a shell game where you know in Europe where they said let's go all renewable. And, and not rely as much on oil and gas, they, they weren't honest with their own voters in those countries like Germany and, and others. And they shifted the emissions to Russia. And we've seen the tragic consequences of that. So I think in some ways, the, the European progressive left has learned that lesson, but I don't know that it's sunk in yet with the Biden administration. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's kind of been a, an all of the above, but nothing below the ground. They don't like the extraction of natural resources. And, and the you know, stark reality is if we are going to expand nuclear, uh, if we're going to expand wind and solar, uh, you know, th- those all take minerals and resources that we need to extract uh, and process. And so all of this has some sort of environmental footprint. Uh, and you can go through life cycle emissions analysis to see what's, what's best. But I think I do think that's part of the problem with the Biden administration has thus far taken. And I think why people have been so skittish to lean into climate policy is that it's been synonymous with regulations, with subsidies and mandates. And those all drive up the cost of energy sources that disproportionately impact low and middle income families. And that's not what people want to hear right now. They want to hear solutions to bring down the cost of energy uh, while making environmental progress. And so you know, that, I, I believe, is the, the stark difference between kind of a top-down, heavy-handed central planning bias approach versus a bottom-up, uh, you know, taking some policy humility and some economic humility approach to allow innovators and entrepreneurs to thrive so they can meet America and the world's energy needs, but also make progress in terms of reducing emissions and building more resilient communities. Yeah, and I appreciate your use of the word humility because two two of the rarest virtues in politics are humility and courage. And (laughs) we we need a lot more of both. So Nick, one of one of the 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 ideas that we discuss a lot is there's there's a critique that's leveled frequently at at sort of the center right movement on energy and environment that says all we're doing is offering happy talk on innovation, where we say, well, innovation's the answer, breakthroughs are the answer, and ultimately those solutions come from labs, not legislators. Uh, but the left often feels like that's insufficient. And I think I think I'm going to get you to respond to that. But but a point of context I think is really important is as we roll out this agenda that has a very robust list of recommendations and mineral access, which you just talked about, and and nine other chapters. Uh, the House Task Force is uh, negotiating with an entire caucus of over 200 members. So what are the strengths and benefits of being a think tank? Uh, is that we can be very nimble. You know, we can we can be very specific in detail. We don't have to negotiate with other other groups to to put out a list. So I think that's an important point of context because as a, as a longtime staffer on the Hill, I worked uh, on the issue of healthcare for many years. And long before Obamacare was even offered, Republicans were arguing that we need to have a detailed specific agenda. And we failed to do that. And, and then when, when Republicans took the House, 
in the White House and the Senate, we weren't prepared to repeal and replace Obamacare, for example. So I give Minority Leader McCarthy and the task force enormous credit for doing what they're they're doing, because it would be very, very easy for them politically to waltz into the majority next year without having to be specific at all with, with this issue, which is politically complicated for a lot of Republicans. So I think that context is important because we're not what we're not saying is that the House is being insufficiently clear. We're not giving credibility to the argument that this is just happy talk. So how, how do you respond to to critics on the left who say, well, you know, innovation is just a nice sounding idea that isn't doesn't get to what we need, which are targets and goals and pledges and so forth. Yeah, part of it, I think, is putting the policy substance behind an innovation agenda, which I think a lot of legislators have done. And a lot of this report focuses on and a lot of think tanks who care about climate change and who care about uh, energy affordability um, have put forth. And so what this report aims to do, and I think what a, a lot of the legislative ideas that have been proposed over the past few years for energy security and for environmental progress are saying, okay, innovation is good. We've seen a lot of economic and environmental benefits from innovation. You know, what is inhibiting more innovation from happening? And how can we fix, tweak regulations, tweak antiquated policies to allow for more investment and innovation to occur? And so that's why I give... um, yeah, McCarthy, a lot of credit. You know, a, a lot of this report is, in fact, uh, a bit of a literature v- review of the existing policy ideas that are out there from different think tanks, whether that's uh, the R Street Institute or the Tax Foundation. Um, you know, there, there's plenty more to, to dive through in this policy report, but it's it's also thinking through what are good economic policies that also have climate co-benefits in terms of reduced emissions uh, and enhanced resiliency for communities. You know, sometimes what we think of climate policy is what the Environmental Protection Agency is doing from a regulatory standpoint, or is this targeted tax credit for wind um, going to reduce emissions? Uh, And what this policy agenda ultimately evaluates is, okay, yes, it does reduce emissions, but at how much cost per taxpayer dollar spent. And a lot of these subsidies, when you dig into them, are very inefficient and very costly for the taxpayer and uh, reduce emissions, but at a very, very high cost. And and we kind of want to flip the script and talk about what are the reducing the regulatory barriers to innovators who are actually driving investments in new technologies that don't cost the taxpayer anything, but also help reduce emissions. And so I think if you look at the policy agenda in the climate and freedom agenda, you know, you'll see that there are opportunities to, uh, one, improve opportunities for nuclear and renewable and hydropower, relicensing uh, existing hydropower plants at a, at a much lower cost than what we're currently doing, as well as in a much shorter time frame. I think one of the, you know, I don't want to call it a silver bullet for climate policy because it's not necessarily a silver bullet, but one overarching theme, uh, whether you talk about wildfire management and reducing the risks of wildfire or building new Uh, nuclear plants or new transmission lines to expand renewable development is permitting reform. And this is something that it's gaining uh, uh, attention on the left and the right uh, because it's taking so long. It's uh, a lot of new projects are just open to uh, frivolous lawsuits and they take years 
to uh, you know effectively adjudicate, and it, it slows the progress of investment and innovation and of natural climate solutions. And so, this innovation agenda comes with the policy substance that's necessary to continue to see the momentum that the United States has already seen in leading the world on emissions reduction and ultimately drive down costs and speed up deployment, not just in the United States, but worldwide. Because if we think about climate change, uh, we have to think about the global uh, environment. And I think that's what gets lost to your point about emissions targets is, yeah, we can get to uh, net zero emissions economy wide by 2050. But it won't mean much climatically speaking in terms of abated warming or uh, slowing sea level rise if we don't get the rest of the world on board. And the rest, the way you get the rest of the world on board is by reducing the cost. So it is in the economic self-interest of these countries to pursue uh, lower emissions technologies and energy resources. Right. And I remember when you were at Heritage, you did a fantastic review of the Green New Deal and found that if, if that policy was enacted, it would have almost zero impacts on global temperatures while imposing a draconian costs and burdens on, on Americans. Yeah, that's right. There's a, a model out there called the Model for the Assessment of Greenhouse Gas-Induced Climate Change, and you can plug in numbers to see what happens if the U.S. and you know, the developed world, you know, the OECD countries, reduce their emissions to zero uh, it, it doesn't mean that much. You know, you're talking about a few tenths of a degree Celsius in abated warming because the the overwhelming majority of future emissions growth, uh, well over 90%, I think Philip Rossetti from the R Street Institute found that it's, it's closer to 97% now. Those future emissions are coming from China and India and the developing world. And so uh, what you do in the United States uh, it, it matters, but it doesn't matter in terms of an overall global picture. What, what really matters is how can the United States lead the world in energy innovation to bring down the cost to help those developing countries secure access to energy, because we still have nearly a billion people without access to affordable, reliable energy, while also making uh, progress in terms of reducing pollution and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So, Nick, one, one last question. If, if you could be king for a day, if you could be in charge of our uh, energy and environment policy, how would you prioritize the, the recommendations and ideas that you've included in this very comprehensive playbook? What, what plays would you run for first and what order and, and why? Yeah, permitting reform would be at the top of the list, kind of, as I mentioned. I really think it would help speed up the uh, transition to more affordable and cleaner energy sources. It would help uh, with controlled burns uh, in forests to reduce the risks of wildfires. It would help build more, more resilient communities. And so, uh, you know, there are a number of ways in just which simple permitting reform by ensuring that we have in, in same uh, environmental safeguards and ensuring that we have public participation in the processes to build new infrastructure, but do it in a, in a much faster fashion. Uh, and, and also, I think we, we need to have a bit of energy pragmatism because what's going to work uh, for the American people is something that maintains energy affordability and reliability and energy security. And so, you know, you have to look at increasing energy supplies for uh, oil and natural gas, uh, exporting more liquefied natural gas to our allies, uh, as well as, you know, expanding uh, renewable and nuclear power. You know, all of these things can work in harmony together, you know, getting back to one of the earlier points. This doesn't necessarily need to be 
a zero-sum game that we're going all in on fossil fuels and this is a drill baby drill platform. It's a it's an all of the above platform that really focuses on uh, letting the market dictate uh, how America's energy needs are going to be met and ways in which we can bring down those costs uh, to drive environmental progress forward. So to summarize those, those first three could be permitting reform, increasing supply, including uh, selling to our allies and friends instead of having them buy from from an authoritarian tyrant, and then finally nuclear. Yeah, and then there's there's a whole list of other other uh, I think access to critical minerals and and many other recommendations. But there are, and one thing you know I shouldn't forget uh, to to talk about is research and development. I mean, research and development is also critical, and we've seen um, you know bipartisan efforts to. Uh, through the Energy Act of 2020 and through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act um, that the uh, President Biden signed, that's going to potentially be a huge catalyst for moving energy innovations forward, whether that's for hydrogen hubs or direct air capsule or technologies we may not even know exist yet. And so, you know, the private sector is ultimately a huge, huge leader when it comes to research, development, and deployment. But I think the more we can uh, maximize the efficient efficiency of those public uh, research dollars, as well as allowing the private sector to tap into what the Department of Energy is doing and commercialize those technologies, as well as having the, the labs uh, at the at Department of Energy, as, as well as at research institutions and uh, at uh, universities around the country, push those innovations out into the marketplace uh, we're going to see a, an, an explosion of energy innovation and climate innovation uh, that's going to be so unpredictable, but it's going to be uh, it's going to be a tremendous benefit to the American economy as well as toward meeting emissions reduction targets and overall reducing the risks of climate change. Yeah, that's a great point to make, and I think you know research and development just to for people to understand is that's that's an issue that is somewhat controversial on the right where. The criticism is that, oh, that can be corporate welfare, crony capitalism, and done inefficiently. It, it definitely it can be and it has been in some circumstances. But as a principle, even you know, my old boss, Tom Coburn, who was the leading fiscal conservative for 20 years, he was a fan of infrastructure and research and development because it was one of the few things the government could do where government had a light touch and where you're allocating dollars based on merit based on peer-reviewed science, not based on someone's relationship with a lobbyist or the, a donor who has a relationship with some energy company. But when we talk about research and development, we're talking about evidence-based, science-based, peer-reviewed, clear metrics, and giving those companies an opportunity to succeed where the private sector, it's filling a gap that the private se sector won't necessarily. For example, fusion, <clears throat> I think is one example where you're not going to have a lot of private sector investment. Does that any other any other examples of how research and development can be can be done efficiently and effectively? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that last point is critical. It's you know focusing on national objectives that the private sector isn't going to undertake, and that can mean a whole range of topics. I know you know under the Obama administration, President Obama. Love to talk about the internet and GPS as uh, commercializations that happened as a result of federal research dollars, but you know those were for Department of Defense needs. It wasn't you know 
we didn't get the internet and GPS because the federal government thought we needed to get from here to the closest Chipotle in the fastest manner. They did it because, you know, it, it helped with our Department of Defense needs and entrepreneurs came and saw that research and commercialized it. And now we have this wonderful economic spillover. So I think that is a critical aspect of it. And, and I think not shying away that it's okay we, that we do basic research for basic research purposes, that you know, there's a, a lot of benefit to trial and error, to uh, foundational you know, knowledge discoveries that come from federal research uh, that might not have commercial application, but to create channels if there is commercial application for, again, the labs to push it out or the private sector to tap into that research. And that's ultimately what we want to see succeed. And, you know, there's different levels of, of where the federal government should stop research for and allow the private sector to, to take over. Um, I think if you focus on that basic R&D with some demonstration programs for early stage technologies, I think that's where I would personally draw the line. Um, but, you know, that is a, a whole different discussion for probably another day. Right. Well, we have we have lots of days to discuss this, uh, so, but but appreciate uh, the overview. Absolutely. So I'd encourage everybody to, to go to our website, c3solutions.org, and look at the Climate Freedom Agenda and also our news magazine, c3newsmag.com. And you can see some uh, summaries of that and a write-up about it as well. And, and Nick, thanks for, for the incredible work you've done. You, you've, you're one of the, the, the true leading experts on this topic. And uh, you, you've given people, I think, a vision of what it is to be serious about climate change and energy policy. And I think there's a lot of unseriousness in this debate. Uh, the Green New Deal, I think, is profoundly unserious, but it's not enough to beat up on the other side's ideas. Uh, I think we have an obligation, uh, if you don't like something, to offer your your alternative and your vision and your details to back it up. So I think you've done that masterfully, and I think it's going to be a, a tremendous asset for years to come for for policymakers and, and just the public, anybody that's that wants to see these ideas adopted. So, yeah, I agree. Thanks, John. I appreciate that. And, you know, I would be remiss not to shout out our colleague, Jeff Luce, who was instrumental in this project. Um, secondly, there's a legislative agenda and addendum attached to this. Um, you know, we're a 501c3, so we're not endorsing any type of legislation, but this is what we think are good legislative ideas that are already out there. Uh, so um, please take a look at the report. Uh, it's something that we're going to continue to build off of. It started with uh, 10 chapters right now, but you know there's loads to cover. And so we want this to be really an evergreen document of policy ideas that will help uh, the American economy and help reduce the risks of climate change. Well, fantastic. So Nick, uh, thanks, thanks again. And this has been John Hart uh, with C3 Solutions, another edition of Bright Voices. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you again next time.